Good afternoon and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast for May 6, 2020. Today I want to give you an update on our plans and discussions for meeting together in worship. Uh, I want to pray with you and then jump into our fantastic scripture passage in Hebrews chapter 4. I know it's frustrating for all of us as we desire to worship together and we just can't do it right now. While our online presentations have been positive and valuable, it's not just the same as gathering in person to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Kyle and Macy Tanner have done a terrific job of faithfulness and excellence in planning and recording times of worship for us. Jeff Watts, without fanfare, has done a stellar job behind the scenes, editing literally hours of video to bring us the absolute best presentation. Braden Tanner has also made valuable contributions as he spruces up our presentation window and takes care of postings these recordings to our YouTube channel and podcasts. Casey Jumper has held the ropes tight and steady for our children's ministry as she puts out Bible studies, worship opportunities, and story time for our children, for their parents, and for our families. These are valuable resources during these uncertain days. Lori Deaver has made some key contributions as well, making sure our office is open, available to those who have a need, and has done a great job of some deep cleaning and reorganizing our supplies. Your memorial staff is working hard and being diligent in anticipation of our all being together again one day soon. With all that said, these are difficult days, and we get many different conflicting news reports about the spread and containment of the coronavirus. When we do actually meet again in person, we want to do it safely and in a way that protects our people and our most vulnerable individuals. Last evening, Tuesday, May 5th, our deacons met online for a Zoom meeting to discuss our reopening for worship. We discussed many different challenges of gathering in person uh, for worship at this time. The deacons, in conjunction with our church staff, have decided uh, to wait a little bit longer to see how things go in our area before jumping back into our worship together at the church building. Our leadership will meet again the week of May 17th to discuss our progress concerning our reopening and what might be a target date for that. We have not, at this point, set a date for reopening Memorial. Again, we have not set a date yet. We will continue with our current online worship format, and Wednesday evening update with our Bible study podcast. You know, some of the key concerns discussed were uh, our inability to sanitize our building properly. Uh, Some of the products needed are still very difficult to get. Um, We would need to be able to screen individuals that are coming in, um, taking their temperature, for instance. Uh, There's also a mandatory uh, wearing of masks, um, hand sanitizing, and really not being able to guarantee the safety of volunteers and children uh, in the child care area. 
these issues would make it feel more like a hospital and less like a church family. When we eventually do reopen, it will be for worship services only, um, Sunday school, small groups, child care, and other ministries will be phased in over time as it becomes safe for us to do so. I just want to thank you so much for your understanding and patience during this time. These are uncharted waters, and we're doing our best to make sure everything is taken care of um, and that we can meet safely when we do eventually meet. I've been encouraged lately by God's Word in many ways, and one of the passages that has kind of been forefront in my mind is Philippians 4, uh, 4-7. through 7. And God's Word says this, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer, and I just want to ask if you would pray with me uh, concerning that. And um, let's just uh, rejoice in the Lord and give thanks for all that He is and has done for each one of us. Almighty God and Everlasting Father, we thank You for loving us so very, very much. We thank You for um, the Lord Jesus, and we rejoice in Him. What a great Savior You have given us. We rejoice for our salvation. We rejoice for the forgiveness of our sin. We rejoice for an eternal home in heaven. Father, we rejoice for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We rejoice for what you are doing in your kingdom and for the kingdom work that you involve us in. For seeing it move forward in our world. For the salvation of lost souls. Father, we give thanks for life. We give thanks for eternal life. Father, we give you thanks for the provisions that you give us. We give thanks for the blessings of this life. Things like the relationships that we have with you and with each other. Father, the things that bless us when you paint a beautiful sunset on the horizon just for us. What a blessing it is. Father, we thank you for for things like the the smile of a neighbor, the touch of a little child, the hug that we receive. Father, a, a good cup of coffee. Oh, you've blessed us in so many, many ways. Father, I pray that your peace would cover your people. Father, that we would be anxious for nothing. The Father, that we would pray and lift up those who don't know you. We thank you for giving us more time to share with others the love that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that your peace would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Father, we, we claim this scripture for us, for our people, for our families. God, we know that we need your peace in times like these, in times of uncertainty, when our world seems like it's turned upside down. We need your peace. So, Father, I pray that your peace would guard our hearts and our minds. And, Father, that we would be about your kingdom work, even in these days, until Christ returns. We love you. We praise you. We seek your face. Give us wisdom as we seek to do the right thing each and every day. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. And Holy Spirit, you are welcome in all of our discussions. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the Holy Bible, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We have a fantastic passage of Scripture today to study. You know, several years ago, I was looking all over our church campus for our maintenance man. I checked in the kitchen. I checked in the fellowship hall. I checked in the choir room. I I went outside and searched the church grounds looking for him. It turned out that he was in his office with his head down on his desk and was getting some rest. (laughs) Now, this is not the kind of rest we'll be talking about in our lesson. Sleeping on the job is not rest. I kind of think there are some Christians, though, who might be sleeping on the job. If so, this message will not provide any comfort for for them. See, the rest that we're talking about is not the kind that you find uh, a couple of weeks in the summer or in a hammock or even in a bed. Speaking of beds, I mean, have you noticed how many mattress commercials are advertised on TV? There are foam mattresses with a memory probably better than mine and a plethora of others. And then there are the the sleeping pills commercials that, you know, you can ask your doctor about it to see if they are right for you. Now, we know that it's important for our bodies to get a proper night's rest. And if we don't, there are some unpleasant consequences. But if physical rest is important to our physical well-being... Spiritual rest is even more important to our spiritual well-being. In our last lesson, we saw how the author of Hebrews warned us about failure to enter God's rest due to unbelief, due to a hardened heart, and to disobedience. We now know we can fail to rest, but it isn't entirely clear just what rest is. I believe the first 10 verses of Hebrews 4 will give us a much better definition of rest, and that's the goal of this lesson. So please open your scripture and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. And as you'll remember, our study of Hebrews has reminded us that Hebrews 1 and 2, uh, chapters 1 and 2, focus on the theme of the superiority of Christ. Christ is better than the angels, Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 3 sets out Jesus' superiority to Moses. The book of Hebrews is addressing a congregation made up of Jewish Christians, some of whom are being tempted to go back to their Judaism 
And so a very important and helpful argument to deploy in that case is to point out Jesus's superiority to Moses, the hero, excuse me, the hero of the Hebrew people. Now, chapter 3 points out that though Moses was a servant in the Lord's house, Jesus is the son over that house. And though Moses failed to bring the people into the land, into the land of promise, Jesus' work has completed the bringing of his people into rest. That argument is made in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And it also points out that we are God's house if we do not harden our hearts. Chapter 3 at the very end focuses on the experience of Israel in the wilderness where they were disobedient and did not trust in the Lord. And because of that, they forfeited the rest that they would have had. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because of that unbelief. And so it's a warning against an unbelieving heart in this local congregation and also for us. Basically, in this passage, Jesus, the new leader, is better than Joshua. See, I've received tremendous benefit from Stephen Cole's writing on this passage, and I believe that you will too. You know, for me, some of the most frightening words in the Bible are Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I mean, clearly, Jesus is warning us that it's possible not only to claim to follow him, but also to serve him in some remarkable ways. I mean, prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles, and yet be excluded from heaven. Jesus was not talking about pagans who spent their lives in riotous living and disregarding God. These were men who had spent their lives serving him, or so they thought, and they cry, Lord, Lord! And it shows that they profess Jesus as their Lord. Clearly, they were shocked at being shut out of heaven. They expected to get in, but when they got there, the door was barred. If Jesus' words do not strike fear into your heart, Let me tell you, they should. Both Jesus' words and the words of our text today warn us against the danger of cultural Christianity. Think about this. Cultural Christians go to church. They claim to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Many of them serve in the church. But on that great and terrible day, they will hear Jesus utter the chilling words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So this afternoon, I want to explain how to avoid being a cultural Christian and how to be genuinely saved. Read with me in Hebrews chapter 4, 
I want to begin in verse uh, 1 and read down through verse 11. And it says this. It says, Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he fixes a certain day, Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would have not spoken of another day after that. Verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. This passage, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, is a difficult text to understand. Now, three key words that we will talk about, beginning in verse 1, are promises, the word remain, and also the the phrase come short. It's one word in in, uh, Greek. So God's promises, they mean so much to the writer of Hebrews. And indeed, the word epagalia, promise, it occurs more often in Hebrews than any other New Testament book. The promise. Notice the promise in question still stands. In other words, it has not been revoked. But throughout this section, it is basic to the argument that even physical entry into Canaan did not constitute the fulfillment of the promise. God had promised rest. And that meant more than just living in Canaan. It is the promised land, but it's more than that. See, in a complicated passage like this, it's it's better to try and grasp the broad lines of the thought before we look at any of the details. And and the writer is really using the word rest in three different senses here. First, he is using it as we would use the, the peace of God. He's talking about rest in him. It's the greatest thing in the world to enter into the peace of God. That is rest. He uses it in that sense. Secondly, he's using it as he used it in Hebrews 3.12 to mean the promised land. 
To the children of Israel who wandered so long in the desert, the promised land was indeed the rest of God. Thirdly, he uses it of the rest of God after the sixth day of creation, when God rested, when all God's word work was complete. See, this way of using a word in two or three different ways of drawing it out until the last drop of meaning was extracted from it was typical of cultured academic thought in the days when the writer of Hebrew wrote this letter. See, there's an interesting play on words. The, the Old Testament example speaks of the promised land, whereas the writer of Hebrews speaks of something far greater than land. He speaks of our spiritual rest in Christ. Now, one of the other words that we're going to talk about here is, is remains, the word remains. It says, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest. The word remains there is a Greek word in the present tense, and it has a passive meaning, and it's this continually caused to remain, or a promise still being left. That is, it, it, is, it was given to believers among Israel of old, and, and it holds good still for all. See, in the passive sense used here in Hebrews 4, this word means to remain behind for a purpose. The passive voice indicates an outside force affects the action of, let's say, keeping the door of the ark open, so to speak. Listen, (laughs) when God decides the time is up, it is up. Even for those almost persuaded, some like King Agrippa or the young ruler in Mark 10, 21, Even all those who are almost but not quite prepared to give up the world and to surrender themselves to the Redeemer. See, to all these, the promise of rest remains. It's still open. It still remains for a purpose. If they will accept the offer of salvation as it is offered in the gospel. To all them who cherish a hope that they will be saved and all who are destined alike to, they're going to be disappointed if they don't accept that salvation. With what earnestness, with what urgency, therefore, we should strive that we may not fall short of or away from this amazing grace of God. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 2.2 Now, another word there that is used is, is to come short of it. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you should seem to have come short of it. The word there in Greek is hustereo, hustereo, 
And it has the basic meaning of being last or, or, or inferior. It means to be left behind in the race and so fail to reach the goal, to fall short of the end, to lack. It means to come too late, to show up tardily too late. Hustereo is used in the famous Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews 11. It says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, hustereo, afflicted, ill-treated. The meaning of hustereo is further illustrated in the following verses in John 2, chapter 3, at the wedding in Cana, the site of Jesus' first recorded miracle. It says, when the wine gave out, the hustereo, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It shows up also again in Luke fifteen fourteen. Now when he, the prodigal son, had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. He, hustereo, failed to reach the goal, he, to, to fall short of the end, to lack. And then again in Matthew 19, verse 20, The young man said to Jesus, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Hustereo. Hustereo means to essentially to be found to come short. As in Romans 3, where Paul writes that all have sinned and fall short. Hustereo of the glory of God. When you come short of something, you miss it by an inch or by a mile, but you still miss it. So those in Romans 3.23 have missed it by a mile. There are others who have missed it by only an inch. I mean, for example, we, we take a look at the man that Mark wrote about and looking at him, a man who ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and Jesus felt love for him and he said to him, one thing you lack, hystereo. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words his face fell and he went away grieved for he is one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. See this is the same word that is used here of coming short. In Hebrews chapter 4. Now, two statements will help us understand the text. The first statement is this the author is not talking about an experience of inner calm that some believers seem to be lacking, but he's talking about experiencing God's salvation. Look at this. Verse 1 says, therefore, And it takes us back to chapter 3, especially to verses 12 through 19. He's warning against having an evil, unbelieving heart. His readers were Jewish believers in Christ who were tempted in the face of persecution to go back to Judaism. Twice he encourages them to hold fast their confession or assurance of faith. 
He cited Psalm 95, which recounts how the Israelites in the wilderness provoked God, and they were thereby excluded from entering His place of rest, the promised land. Oh, they all had applied the blood of the Passover lamb to their doorposts. They'd all passed through the Red Sea and escaped from Pharaoh's army. But even so, with most of them, God was not well pleased. And he laid them low in the wilderness, according to 1 Corinthians 10.5. To understand that story correctly, it's important that we do not push the typology too far. We would be mistaken to conclude that all those who came out of Egypt were true believers who were living in carnality. I've often heard the story applied in this way. Those in Israel who grumbled in the wilderness are likened to carnal Christians. They're saved, but they just haven't moved into Canaan's land, which is the experience of victory over sin. Sometimes this is phrased that they are still in Romans 7, but they haven't moved into Romans 8. I contend that this is to misapply this story. Rather, I believe that those who rebelled in the wilderness and incurred God's wrath represent what I'm calling cultural believers. They were part of the people of God. They were part of Israel, but their hearts were far from trusting in the Lord. Their hearts were repeatedly described as hardened. They were under God's wrath. Their basic problem is called unbelief disobedience, and sin. The author plainly is talking about a person's response to the gospel, not an experience of a deeper Christian life. Twice he states that these people, like us, had the good news preached to them. Even under the law of Moses, people were not saved by keeping the law, but by the righteousness of faith. But the good news did not profit these people because it was not united with faith. So when the author urges us to fear lest we come short of entering God's rest, the thing we are to fear is unbelief and its terrible consequences, namely eternal judgment. We should fear that like these grumbling unbelievers, we may fall through the same example of disobedience. Either we have entered God's rest, His salvation through faith, or we are the objects of His wrath through unbelief and disobedience. If we do not believe God's promises, those very promises turn into frightening threats of judgment. So I contend that the context shows us that the author's pastoral concern was not that some carnal Christians in the Hebrew church would miss out on the experience of God's peace in the midst of their trials. His main concern was that some of them may be like those in Israel in the wilderness. They may may be part of the religious crowd, but not true believers. His concern was for their salvation from God's wrath through genuine saving faith. Now, the second statement is this, that God has always offered His salvation to people and continues to offer it under the imagery of rest. We find this in verses 3 through 10. The train of thought in 3 through 10 here is difficult, but it's, I think that the author is explaining from the Old Testament how the imagery of God's rest has been a picture of salvation in four different time periods. 
Now, stick with me here. At creation, God's rest on the seventh day was a picture of rest that we enjoy in Him. Look at verses 3 and 4. For indeed, we who have believed enter that rest, just as He said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. For He who has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. We find that quote in Genesis 2 too. So the author begins by saying, for we who have believed enter that rest. And then he cites Psalm 95, verse 11. And then he adds, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to cite Genesis 2.2. You know, F.F. Bruce, he explains the thought connection. He says, it is not because the rest of God was not yet available that the wilderness generation of Israelites failed to enter into it. It had been available ever since creation's work was ended. In other words, the Jewish Sabbath, which was rooted in the creation narrative, was a picture of the rest that God's people enjoy through His salvation. It was a day to cease from normal labors and to be refreshed through time with God. It was a weekly opportunity for God's people to stop and reflect on His goodness and care for them. From the beginning, there was a spiritual element to the Sabbath. The soul in harmony with His Creator found a sense of satisfaction and rest on that day. That is one explanation here. Moving on, the writer says, At Canaan, the promised land was a picture of the rest that God offers through faith in Him. He repeats the phrase of Psalm 95, 11, They shall not enter my rest, to refer to the generation that perished in the wilderness. In in verse 8 of chapter 4, he shows that even those who entered the promised land under Joshua, not under Moses, but under Joshua, did not experience the fullness of God's rest in that David, over 300 years after Joshua, spoke of the need to enter God's rest. In the Greek text, Joshua is Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jesus and Joshua are the same word, the same name. And and so the original readers would have seen the play on the names. The original Jesus, the original Joshua, was only a type of the Jesus that was to come. Joshua led the people to the promised land, but that was only a picture of the rest of God's salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and that He provides. Thirdly, I would say Cana, Canaan was not only was not God's final rest, since David wrote of a rest available to God's people in his in David's day. Look at verse 6 and 7. Since those in the wilderness failed to enter God's rest, and since David wrote, Today, 
If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There is still a day of opportunity to respond to God's offer of rest. See, the emphasis here is on the word today. The gist of the argument here is that God's promises always have a present application to them. Even though Israel in the wilderness failed to appropriate God's rest, God offered it again through David. Listen, every generation has the opportunity to respond in faith to God's promises. And this leads us to the bottom line in in verses 9 and 10, that God is still appealing to us to enter His rest through faith. The author here uses a unique word for rest. It's translated Sabbath rest. Some think that maybe the writer coined the word. It calls attention to the spiritual aspect of God's rest. It goes beyond observing the Sabbath day as as being holy. It goes beyond entering the physical promised land. This Sabbath rest is what we might call a, a soul rest. It is what Jesus promised when he said this. He said in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the author says that this rest remains for the people of God. Then he explains that the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, the people of God refers to Israel in the Old Testament, and here it refers to all who are associated with God's church. F.F. Bruce, whom I mentioned earlier, thinks that verses 9 and 10 refer to an experience which they do not enjoy in their present mortal life, although it belongs to them as a heritage, and by faith they may live in the good of it here and now. He refers to the believers in chapter 11 who did not experience the fullness of the promises in their lifetime, but who were looking for the heavenly city that God prepared for them. I should reverse his order and say that we live in it here and now by faith, but what they know here is not the the full story. That may be revealed in the hereafter. There is a sense in which to enter Christian salvation means that we cease from one's work and rest securely on the finished work of Jesus Christ and what He has done. The author's point here is that from the beginning, God has offered His salvation to people and still offers it under this imagery of entering His rest. So at the heart of it is that we stop trusting in our own works to save us and begin trusting instead in the finished work of Christ to save us. As Paul puts it, 
to the one who does not work, he but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Romans 4 verse 5. To sum us up, when the author talks of entering Christ's rest, he's not talking about believers learning to trust God in trials so that they may experience His inner peace. Rather, he's talking about God's salvation under this imagery of rest in line with the Old Testament. He's warning his believers about the danger of being associated with God's people, but missing his salvation because they do not respond in faith. To the message. Now let's switch gears here for just a few moments. I know this is going to go a little bit long, but um, just hang with me if you will. And let's apply this text to us. And I want to offer you a few applications. Some of them are repeated from earlier, uh, but since the writer hammers these things home through repetition, so will I. I want to say that cultural religion, in other words, general belief, will not save anyone. To be saved, we must have a personal experience and and faith in Jesus Christ. It must be personal. It must be ours. The Jews in the wilderness, they believed in God in a general sense. They knew and believed that the story of creation and the history that was recorded in Genesis, they believed in that. They believed that the covenant with Abraham applied to them as his descendants. They even believed God enough to apply the blood to their doorposts and to follow Moses through the Red Sea. They had heard God's good news, but it did not profit them because they did not believe it personally. When they heard about the giants in the land, they complained that it would be better to have died in Egypt or to die in the wilderness than be killed by the Canaanites. So God granted them their wish, and they all died in the wilderness. Except for a few. See, it's not enough to grow up in the church and to have a general belief about God and in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard the gospel all your life, and intellectually you believe in Jesus and that He died for your sins, but intellectual belief is not enough. Saving faith trusts personally in the shed blood of Jesus as the only payment for my sins. Saving faith believes that God will be gracious to me in the judgment because my sins are covered by Jesus' blood and that His righteousness has been imputed to me according to God's promise. Make sure that your hope of heaven is not based on your parents' faith or on the fact that you hang out with some Christians in a church building. You must see your need as a sinner before God and come personally to the cross in faith to receive God's mercy. Also, look out for the false peace that comes through cultural religion. I fear that many in churches today, like those Jesus referred to, will say, Lord, Lord, but who will be shut out of heaven. You know, Jeremiah 8 verse 11 warned about false prophets who healed the brokenness of the daughter of God's people superficially by saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. People today are encouraged to invite Jesus into their heart and then are told that they have eternal life and will never lose it. They are not told that they need to repent of their sins. They are not told that God must change their hearts. You know, 
Polls show that there is virtually no difference today between the way that evangelicals live and think than the way the rest of the population thinks and lives. Just because a person feels inner peace does not mean that they are truly saved. I encourage you to read Jonathan Edwards' A Treatise on Religious Affections. A modern English condensed version is called The Count, The Experience That Counts. And he analyzes in great detail with an abundance of scriptural support how a person can know which feelings are valid indicators of genuine conversion. Thirdly, I would say saving faith is a matter of our hearts toward God, not a matter of outward religion. Verse 7 is the third time the author has repeated the warning about not hardening our hearts. God looks on the heart, not on the outward performance of religious duties. Salvation is, is a matter of God doing heart surgery, replacing our hardened hearts, our hearts of stone, with hearts of flesh that are tender towards Him, according to Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. If you are truly saved, you know that your heart is different than it was before. It is not that you never sin now, but rather that your attitude towards sin is radically different. Before you loved it, now you hate it. Before you were apathetic towards the things of God, now you love God and you love His Word. The bent of your life is a desire to know Him and to love Him more and more. Fourthly, I would say that saving faith is always obedient faith. As last week we saw, the author uses faith and obedience interchangeably. It's not that we are saved by works, but rather that true saving faith always results in a life of obedience to God. Again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. No one lives perfectly this side of heaven, but a true believer strives against sin. Instead of being a slave to sin, a believer is a slave of righteousness out of obedience from the heart. And a person who is not growing in obedience to God's word should question whether their faith is a genuine saving faith or just a cultural religion. Saving faith also rests totally on the finished work of Christ Jesus. If we're depending on anything else to get us into heaven, we've not entered God's rest. It is possible even to depend wrongly on your faith, thinking that your faith gets you into heaven. Hear me now. To do this is to turn faith into a work. It becomes the thing you are trusting for eternal life. Don't trust in your faith. Trust in Christ. If salvation were based on my faith, then it would be due to something in me and not according to grace. See, God gives us and He saves us by His grace based on the merit of Jesus Christ. Faith simply looks to Christ and relies on Him alone. I would say also that saving faith requires little effort in one sense, but requires diligent perseverance in another sense. I mean, there's a sense of irony in this exhortation, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Verse 11, while salvation is a gift that we passively receive, there is also an active responsibility on our part to lay hold of it. We must rest from our works, but be diligent to enter God's true rest. You know, you can cruise right into hell without any effort. Just go with the flow of the world, the flesh, the devil, and you're going to get there. 
But getting into heaven requires diligence and watchfulness. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Be diligent in seeking God's rest through his word so that you do not come short of it. Saving faith also brings great confidence in God during current trials and great hope in God for future eternal joy. The rest spoken of here is both a present reality and a future hope. The present reality is, as Paul said in Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It also includes, as he goes on to say, that we exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. And then the future hope is the promise of being with the Lord forever in glory, when according to Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. <laughs> Ain't that going to be something? See, I hope that this message has disturbed the comfortable and comforted the disturbed. If you tuned in feeling comfortable about your standing before God because you're associated with Memorial or because you serve in some way in the church, or because of anything that you do, I hope you are now disturbed because you see that your standing with God is on shaky ground. To base your hope for heaven on an outward religion is to have a false hope. On the other hand, if you, come, if you came in feeling disturbed, because you were despairing of your inclination towards sin and you knew that if salvation depends on your performance, you'll never qualify, I hope that you are comforted with the good news that you can enter God's eternal rest through faith in Christ alone. Fear, the unbelief of cultural Christianity. Trust in the Savior who gives true rest to His people. You know, it was almost... 2,000 years ago, Christ made an offer to people, and this offer is just as true and real today. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, I believe that my personal favorite phrase in Hebrews is He is able. Hebrews 2.18, Hebrews 7.25 To see that your great high priest is able to accomplish for you all the things, dear child of God, that you need. Thank you so much for tuning in. Next week we will continue our study of Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13 and, and following. But until then, I just encourage you to stay safe, stay studied, stay fed and exercised. And everything that you do, whatever you do, give God the glory that is due His name. God bless you. God loves you. 
We love you, and we'll talk to you soon.